Always honest, often blunt, and never afraid, this is the narrative. I'm Center for Christian Virtue President Aaron Baer, and my co-host is our policy director, David Mahan. Uh, I, you know, for those of you who caught last week's uh, episode, you, I, I teed it up by saying this week, I mentioned that this week's episode was going to be on anti-Semitism, but David wouldn't even let me have that. Are you kidding? And so, yeah, uh, I'm just saying, like, I wanted to have at least one episode on anti-Semitism, and David said, <laughs> no, we got to just do do more on everything else. We're tight, like, <laughs> let me have one. And he said, no. So, no, actually, uh, David, uh, through his massive uh, network that he's got, uh, booked us a phenomenal guest, uh, Will Riley, That's right. uh, to talk about race by the numbers, and 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 he's written a book called A Hate Crime Hoax and and Taboo, and and really just kind of dove into uh, the uh, the conversation all around. You know, really dove into a lot of the numbers that the media right. uses. Um, and I, I will give fair warning. You know, we talk about how uh, never often blunt, never afraid. Um, you know, this this was also a first of uh, the first narrative podcast with profanity in it. So, uh, just, when just, he said blunt, he really meant blunt. Yes, like, yeah, right. That, that comes up too, actually. It. Well, uh, you'll hear that conversation in just a little bit. We're actually going to do uh, another first uh, for the narrative. We're going to have a little bit of a different uh, opening uh, conversation here uh, because of just some things that have happened uh, around CCV. Uh, over the past uh, few days, and and for those of you who are on our, our email list, um, you you probably saw a statement out from us, and and uh, you, you might have seen some of the news uh, surrounding this. Um, and this is a, a good time to to have a conversation about it. You know, this past Sunday, uh, David was invited to uh, preach at Crossroads Church. Uh, Crossroads is one of the the, the largest churches. Uh, it is the largest church in the state of Ohio. It's also one of the largest in the country. Uh, based in Cincinnati, um, and uh, and they, they invited David after they saw a sermon that he preached here in Columbus uh, that we sent out uh, about you know going upstream. Stream was talking about Christian political engagement and and particularly talking about uh, what, what's happening to children today around uh, transgenderism and the sterilization of children. And and uh, the, the Crossroads team saw the 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 video that we posted and and reached out and, and asked if if David would would come and preach. Uh, at Crossroads, um, and so you know, it, I mean, it was an amazing week of. of I mean, this this place is no joke. Massive, and, yeah. Like yeah. that, we had a, a they, they did a a tech run through with you on Thursday, and and yeah. you know practice practice study, practice service, exactly. um, and and it was. I, I will say, like, it, you know, I know for David, for all of us, it was it was with both great celebration and trepidation uh, we did this because. You know, really, um, what 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 led up to this was about 18 months ago, um, before David was working at CCV during the COVID uh, lockdowns, he had some time to do some research on the things he had been seeing in schools. David, you want to just kind of explain what you had been seeing yeah. in schools? Yeah, we, um, you know, there is right right before the lockdown, um, we were sent some information from one from a high school uh, teacher, another one from a middle school teacher of content that was being. Uh, recommended to young people in the classroom. And again, I want to make a, uh, it wasn't necessarily curriculum per se. It was being recommended as somebody's program, you know, sexual health program. And so we had middle school and high school content. And I really just had some time to dig into some of those online uh, and reliable recommended resources uh, from, from this, from this Centero group uh, that was, you know, mental health organization teaching healthy bodies, healthy futures. And um, just three of the websites that I, I dove into, um, Scarletine, Bedsider, 
and um, mosaicohio.org. Um, both of them were what a lot of law enforcement would call um, um, grooming sites. You know, you would you would click on them, and some of them were full of articles that were, uh, you know, very provocative. And then you know, one, two, three clicks in, you're on full board porn, you know, porn sites, BDSM, sex toy shops, uh, and uh, and I was just kind of exposing, you know, some of that uh, to the body of Christ and encouraging them to go upstream. Uh, to deal with the issues before it gets to the community level. Um, we need to go upstream to where folks are pumping poison into the community and deal with it up there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so D- David brought this investigation to, to, to me and to actually a number of other great watchdog organizations. Um, and, and, you know, even at that time last year, we were praying, you know, Lord, okay, how are we going to get this out? Like this, this is a, and, and, you know, the, the idea, though, that we had been David had seen and we had started seeing systematically all across the this, the country, the state, rural, urban, suburban, this dangerous transgender ideology that's sterilizing kids, pushing kids on hormone therapy is is popping up everywhere in every school district. Um, and, and parents were just so ill equipped uh, to deal with it. And 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 churches didn't know about it. And, all. and so we, we just started praying, Lord. You know, help us to know what to do with this. And, you know, slowly but surely, God just started opening up all these doors for for David to have conversations with folks and us to to really start getting the message out about right. what's been happening. And a lot of other folks have been doing this nationally as well. But, but um, you know, that, honestly, in many ways, this is what led to David coming on the CCV team. Uh, and, and ultimately, has let, you know, God opened up this door to preach at Crossroads. Yeah, that, it was um, it was something that I didn't take I didn't take lightly because I knew there were yeah. so many members um, and uh, uh, I just want to say you know before we get into really what happened, um, my wife and I were so blessed by the people by the staff. Uh, they were they were just it was just beautiful folks and and I think the staff itself, after each of the three services, there was a standing ovation. You know, yeah. and the staff was overwhelmed with like, well, I cannot believe how they have responded to this, you know, to, to this message. Yeah. And, and it was, it was a tough one. And, you know, I, I, I especially remember, you know, I was able to be at all three and, and you really, I mean, it, you, you, your, your primary verse or one of the primary verses you were using was out of, out of Jude one where, where, you know, Paul talks about how, you know, I, I wanted to write you about, you know, the, to talk about Christ crucified yeah, salvation. and salvation yeah. and, and all these things. But it's come to my attention these these moral issues that have arisen, and I have to talk about those. Yeah, it's got to contend for the faith. Exactly, got it. Exactly, and that was, and that was, you know, David really leaned into that to say, "Look, guys, I, I wish I could. I don't want to talk. We don't revel in talking about these issues, but this is so big, and it's happening in your backyard, in your community, to your kids. Right. And and the the evidence of that too was just, you know, this sense of relief that we got from so many people in the room that like. Thank you. Someone's talking about this, and and right. we, you know, I, I feel like so much of what's happening in the culture today, um, you know, the, the the media does such a powerful job of making you feel like you're crazy if you're the only one looking around saying, "Is am, am I seeing what they're doing, saying to kids right now?" And and what what, and, and so it was such a relief, and and you know, we got such good feedback from people, and afterwards, what, what no one saw is afterwards. You know, after every service, people wanted to talk to David, uh, and and they couldn't because he had to go and prep for the next one. But after the third service, David asked the staff if he could just stand right. out by by the stage and talk to people, 
and and there was about an, a, a line literally all the way back to the back of the church and he, he stood there for an hour afterwards many LGBT individuals yeah. came up many many medical professionals who who are, are feeling the pressure to push social this on workers, kids social teachers, workers teachers there was not one negative interaction yeah he got to pray for these people I mean it was it was beautiful and and the, and the church was was so beautiful in how they they, they responded. Um, but I remember, I'll say, I remember I, I had a conversation with one of the, the pastors there about how, you know, guys just, we're, we're, we're in many ways, uh, CCB has the, the easy side here because we're, we're coming to preach and, and bring the message. And this is what we do all the time anyway. Uh, but then we get to leave and, and there's going to be a lot of folks that are going to want to have conversations. And it was, it was such an encouraging conversation I had with the, the pastors, but then, then the, 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 the online pressure really built up. And and we're we're not sure what happened, um, but yesterday uh, at eight thirty at night, uh, Crossroads uh, posted a statement uh, to their their social media. Um, you know what they said is providing clarity uh, for what happened. Um, but I'll, I'll just read you what what they wrote. They wrote, "quote This past weekend, Crossroads hosted a guest speaker." who broached the subject of children seeking to transition to a different gender. Unfortunately, there are many who have been hurt and are looking for clarity. Regardless of a person's sexual or gender identity, we love them and welcome them as does God. What was shared was uh, this weekend was never meant to hurt anyone, and we deeply regret that it did. This is a topic that warrants increased care and empathy, and we're sorry that didn't happen this weekend. Crossroads also does not financially or otherwise support any political organizations in their platform including Center for Christian Virtue, where this weekend speaker is employed. We have no intention of being activist in this or any other political space. Our main goal has and will be always to bring people to Christ. Um, so uh, we've, we've put out a statement um, in response to that. We've, I, 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 we, we spoke to the, the, the pastors over there. I spoke to the pastor over there this morning um, to, to talk through what their, what, you know, where their heart was with that. Um, and we, we put out a statement in response um, this morning, one in particular to, to clarify, CCB is not a political organization. I think that's, that, that's a really important thing for people to understand. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, profit, nonpartisan organization. We can't be a political organization by law. Um, and, and, you know, we talk about issues uh, that, as we say, we advocate for, for issues that reflect the truth of the gospel. Um, the, the culture might have called these things political um, but they are there, you know, talking about transgenderism is no more political than talking about poverty. Right. Um, the, the other thing about this though, that, that for me that I felt really like really needed clarity. Um, and, 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 and this is having seen the, the time and the care that David puts into, and you know, you, we, David and I give each other a hard time on this podcast and, uh, and I mean, that's what you guys see on the podcast, not what we say to each other in the office. It's easy. He's actually much meaner. He li- literally, I just, I, 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 and, oh, and there's video go. of this. I gotta say this. Here he literally go. just called me ugly on no. stage at Crossroads. <laughs> like, which, which I gotta say, like, I put a lot of time and energy and thought into my jokes about David. And he just called me ugly. Like, it's like, listen, I, there was a point where I was honoring him and, you know, his friendship and his leadership. And it just felt weird. That was the first word that came out. He's ugly. Like, my goodness. Thank, I think my wife was gone for that one. Um, and, and but but the, again, the, the sad thing is well, maybe the good thing is uh, that Crossroads has taken down all videos and, and uh, uh, message, <laughs> message, mention of CCB or David. So. You know, I, I guess that's the upside of all of this is that, you know, it's not on the Internet anymore that David called me ugly. Um, but 
but but in all seriousness, I have come to res- get to know this man and and respect him for, you know, the, the the reason why I was I really wanted David to be our policy director here is that you know most of the people in politics are so disconnected from the, how the issues we deal with impact people, um, and David as a practitioner, he you know he literally had no lobbying experience, had never been you know. D- d- didn't even know really how a bill becomes a law in, in Ohio. A little bit. You didn't. But, but, but had a heart for people uh, and had a heart for Jesus and, and wanted and had a calling, most importantly, uh, and has just been a game changer in, in, since he's come on, on the team here. And, and the idea that uh, David would ever broach an issue like this without empathy or care is just wrong. It, it's just it, it's it's not true. You know, we, we made uh, we were very careful. Um, and, and I say we I mean, the, the Crossroads staff, uh, myself, that we, we debriefed after every presentation. Uh, it was really a grueling process. I mean, to preach four times a topic like that uh, in, a, in a day. Um, but we, we, we made sure that we gave a disclaimer, a couple of disclaimers. Number one, that the reason why we're having this talk, and then Pastor Brian was was saying, is the reason why we're having this talk is because of cancel culture. It's because, you know, we've got we've got books that that break down just the facts of this topic of transgendering children. They're being canceled uh, off of Amazon. Um, he's had content that was canceled, and um, he he felt like this is something that we need to discuss, and then turned around and canceled me. Um, and, uh, and the other disclaimer was, is that there, we're making a delineation between the young people who are struggling with gender, uh, gender incongruence or gender dysphoria from the radical activists who are using them as human shields. Yeah. That is a flat out truth that I've seen, um, with my own eyes in, uh, in, in the classroom as, as well as other, you know, places, uh, we've got young people being removed from their children's home right there in Hamilton County in 2018. Um, you know, we've got five, uh, at least five gender clinics in the state of Ohio and parents have no clue that this is going on. Somebody's got to talk about this without fear of being canceled. Yeah. And, and, and what, what's important about that is that the only people in today's modern culture, uh, that have ongoing, that, that will have even the incentive to speak out about this is the church. Um, it, because, because we have the Holy spirit and our future is secure. Um, and, and unfortunately though, and we put this in our statement, unfortunately though, all too often, the only people that aren't talking about transgenderism and LGBT issues broadly and the sexual revolution, sexual issues broadly is the church. You know, again, the, 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 the narrative around, uh, the, and, and I just should say, you know, to our, to our producer fans, I, I think we need to add like a, a bell in the podcast. Every time <laughs> someone says the narrative or go ding. Our, our guest said the narrative a couple of times and I was like, that's good branding right there. Anyway, uh, sorry, we're, we digress too much. The, the, but the, the narrative around these issues is that churches are just so obsessed with sex and all these types of things. And, and again, what we see here at CCB is it, it is churches are, are terrified to talk about this issue right. and we see why, you know, and, and, and also to like, not just cause they're afraid of being canceled, but, but honestly too, it's really easy to bash the church and pastors. And, and I think the reality is for a lot of them, they just don't know what to say. They want to say something. They like they they recognize something is going wrong, and they want to say something, and they need to, but they don't know what to say. And and so for us, you know, we want to be around uh, be, be around pastors and churches, and encouraging them. And, and and I'll just say, um, we're, we're we're running long here. Um, you know the 
the the the the story the the conversation around the sterilization and and medical harm of children because of the transgender movement um, is one. It, it is a, a serious human human rights issue uh, of, and one of the biggest human rights issues of our days. When you think about the actual scale and the swiftness that's happening and the long term effect it's going to have on so many children's lives and. Um, you know, for, for pastors who, who, who want to see this and want to, we're here to help you. Um, David, any other thoughts on this? You know, I just want to share one interaction. Um, there was, um, like you said, there were, there were some folks struggling uh, with their identity, but you also had parents that were, that had children that were struggling. And I'll never forget, um, there was a mother and a father and, and basically, you know, saying that it, this was my fault, that I, that I did this, I was unaware um, you know, I had issues, you know, I, I wasn't aware of what was going on and their child was already in the process of, you know, over there at the Cincinnati clinic, uh, gender clinic. And that father wept and, and I wept with him and we prayed, you know, God's grace is sufficient. Even when it's our fault, God's grace is sufficient. Even when we don't understand, um, I, I wish, I just wish folks could have seen all three services, the response of the people, on both sides of this issue, it was given with great care, with great prayer. I, I had, I mean, we had hundreds of intercessors. David had like six hours of sleep last week, like totally, and <laughs> literally, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. But and, and uh, he looks like it right now. Uh, but <laughs> see, that was a clever joke. Yeah, that's not. But <laughs> I, I do want to share this one fact, if I could. And and you hear me say it a lot. This this narrative or myth that affirmation equals love and healing disagreement of any kind no matter how loving equals hate and harm that's what we just saw demonstrated here but but the american college of pediatrician um, made this statement it is now alleged that discrimination violence psychopathology and suicide are the direct and inevitable consequences of withholding social affirmation and puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones from a gender dysphoric child yet the fact is that 80 percent 90 not 80 to 90 percent of gender dysphoric youth emerge physically and psychologically intact after passing through puberty um Nobody ever gets to hear this side of the story, which if you don't, it would it may affirm that affirmation equals love and healing and disagreement equals hate and harm. Uh, but until the body of Christ steps up and starts having this discussion, um, we just prove them right. Amen. No, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I'll just I'll just say uh, one uh, for for uh, any church out there that's struggling with it. Please, please call us, um, and, and we, we're here to serve. Uh, and there's a lot of organizations out there uh, that, that are, are in the same position. Um, two, um, I want to ask you guys just to pray for Crossroads. Look, at the end of the day, they still opened up their pulpit to let David uh, right. share this message. Um, and there's a lot of people uh, at that church that are, are um, doing amazing work for people. I mean, the things that that church has supported— uh, hurting people, those types of things. It's, it's, it's huge. And, and they're in the fire right now. And this is not a place that a lot of pastors anticipate themselves finding themselves in. That's right. Um, and, and I think it should, you know, I think what David just shared too, if you're just thinking, well, Crossroads is a really big church in a really big city. Um, the people in my church aren't dealing with this. I'm telling you, you're wrong. Yeah. It's coming. It, it's it, not it's, there already. It, yeah. And, and, and the reality is if you like, if you wait, Till you see it, you're too late. Yep. 
because because then you have children already wrapped up in it. But but this same curriculum is happening in the rural schools. I mean, it's happening everywhere. Um, and so so churches, pastors, please. Uh, and Lord Jesus, please use this situation uh, to, to, to broadcast what's happening right now to children and, and let this uh, be an awakening of the church. So with that, we're going to uh, move on to our conversation with, with Will Riley. Uh, really looking forward to hearing this. We're going to take a quick break here on The Narrative and be right back. Center for Christian Virtue seeks the good of our neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. We empower people like you to have a voice in the culture on the most important political and cultural issues of the day. Through our public policy advocacy, grassroots activism, church ambassador network, Ohio Christian Education Network, and Christian Business Partnership, there are countless ways for you to get involved. Join the movement today by visiting ccv.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's ccv.org and click join the network. Stories are a way we relate to one another. It's hard to underestimate their importance. Wessler Media is here to help you preserve those stories that you hold dear. We'll produce a personal podcast, an audio scrapbook, that will preserve those memories for generations to come. Get in touch today. Call toll-free or text 1-833-38-STORY. 1-833-38-STORY. Or visit wesslermedia.com. That's W-E-S-S-L-E-R media.com. Thanks for joining us today on The Narrative. We're so grateful to have Will Riley here to discuss uh, race and the numbers. Will Riley is an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, historically black college. He is the author of the books, Hate Crime Hoax, Taboo, and the $50 million question. Riley's interests include quantitative methodology and the actual testing of widely made social claims, modern American race relations, basketball cooking, and beer and will i would say based on what uh what you read spend a lot of your time on you probably need a whole lot of the latter uh yeah. <laughs> well, i mean that's an old joke in political science that there's always an excuse to drink because of what's right. going on in the world like politics war and so on or you know rarely something nice like there there's always a great deal of conflict yeah and the actual i i like the actual testing of the uh the <laughs> widely made social claims as opposed to the uh the the faux testing that we see a lot going on that's good yeah so I mean, I, this is this has been an interview that uh I, i've really been looking forward to i know i was trying to get you for a while and um i've heard so so many of your interviews uh, i think you've got a very fresh perspective and, and a lot of that is built out of the practitioner side of what you do can you just give our, our listeners a little bit of background on who you are and what you're about what, what motivates you yeah well i i think that one of the things that makes my perspective unique to the extent it is and i think this is more when you get into the race relations and politics stuff as versus sort of academic quantitative papers but is that I kind of came from outside the modern American sort of upper middle class and had the feeling at a lot of different phases that most of what I was seeing was bullshit. Most of the things that people were saying on the right and the left just empirically didn't seem to be true. Whether it was the conservative guy saying, well, if you give people money, it won't help them. Or it was the leftist guy saying, you know, there's no relationship between, you know, the number of cops or guns in a neighborhood and the amount of crime there. It just all sounded like a bunch of crap. So I, I was curious about this. Right. I'll put my background, I mean, I'm from Chicago. I was born originally on the south side of Chicago. I grew up, spent most of my life actually on the north side across Madison. I've lived in the Wicker Park neighborhood. That's kind go of Cubs go. I'm sorry. Go Cubs go. 
Well, I'm, a, I'm actually a Sox fan. Ah, the Sox, I mean, in Chicago, if you've ever partied in Wrigley, oh, go. you to dislike the Cubs. Oh, <laughs> like, God. drunk Dennis' is... daughter vomiting on the doorstep of the bar and, like, people uh. fighting badly in the street, like cops on horses. The entire Cubs neighborhood, the Cubs are in a Chicago neighborhood, as you guys <laughs> I am, I am, I, like, this is going so far off the rails and already. And, and we just I, got started. Listen, you put in another controversy. Uh, but I'm, I, 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 we can't help it, but this man just like to go after Wrigleyville in such a it's holy ground, but we'll keep going. Keep uh, let's just is one of the I like I like I love Chicago and I have a lot of friends that actually lived in Wrigleyville when I was a young man. But Wrigleyville is legitimately, unless you're there to party, one of the most obnoxious neighborhoods. <laughs> I mean, it's like Bourbon Street with less attractive people. I mean, it, it's just every day. Listen, when you're like, eating that you, much hot dogs and like the, the, but, the reason why the SNL, the Bears skit was 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 so funny was because it was true. That's what we, you know, all my family's from Chicago. We're, yeah. And uh, my, my, my parents got married in Wrigleyville. Um, and so, and the good thing is the people listening to this podcast can't see me to verify all the things you're saying. <laughs> um, about the people in Wrigleyville, but it's, anyway, it's we'll keep going. Area, but it's Wrigleyville definitely is what it is. The other thing that's funny about this, and I, I have no hater hostility here at all, but Wrigleyville is right next to the country's largest gay neighborhood, Boys Town. So yeah. it's this large circus-like area where if you go to one street, there's going to be a bar full of frankly drunk straight women that are very likely to hook up with you. And the next street, there's going to be a bar full of shirtless guys that are going to make pretty similar offers. And all these people are out in the streets together, like eating Italian sausages and so on, wearing social lumber company t-shirts and all this. It's definitely one of the country's great kind of urban. We'll get places. back to the statistics, yeah. man. You kill him, you'll probably be fired after this, bro. Like <laughs> But the, the point is that with, with all of this, the point is that I, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in uh, what at the time was a working class kind of arts district community. I was originally from the South Side, which is a legendary working class community. And I basically, I just went to school in Illinois. Um, yeah. I thought I was gonna join the military after high school. And this again is just, you get to see those social class intersections. Like I moved out of the city a little bit before my freshman year for academic and athletic reasons. And I went to East Aurora, which is right at a working class school right outside of Chicago. But because it was mostly uh, Latino and Eastern European kind of lower middle-class school, like the army was a presence. Like we had a yeah. National Guard armory on the campus. And like every time I went out to run before like whatever season it was, there'd be like soldiers on the track. Like if you don't quite make it to college, you know, we got an offer for you. <laughs> so I, I always just assumed I would join the military. But uh, in fact, I got some academic scholarships. I ended up going to Southern Illinois University for college, then uh, Illinois for law school. And by that point, I mean, I was either going to become a white collar criminal prosecutor. That was at least my focus. I think I would have been hired. Or I was going to go back to grad school. And I got an offer from Southern Illinois. And I went back there. But throughout this entire period, I mean, I was living in the Midwest. Uh, a lot of my friends were still in the hood, frankly, or on kind of the Caucasian side of the fence or sort of blue haired skaters living in Wicker. Like they were just people. Um, you know, most of my family still mostly lives in Chicago. And so I was able to look at a lot of what at the time was sort of the accepted up middle class narrative. College leans very far left also. I'm, I'm probably center right, but definitely to the, on the right side of the spectrum. And so I became interested once I went through some of my quantitative methods classes and I had that training in, well, to what extent are a lot of these claims true? So, I mean, in the book Taboo, which you guys have mentioned, looks at, for example, the Black Lives Matter claim that there is an epidemic level of violence by police 
against uh, poor men, especially black men, men of color, um, looks at the claim that there's a massive amount of interracial crime and violence in the USA, looks at the idea of systemic racism with basic things like age adjusted for. And for that matter, I look at some of the claims of the far right and the alt right. Um, you know, diverse societies are more violent than non-diverse societies. And what I find is that a lot of these things are just empirically wrong. Like we're not having a moral conversation. The claim itself just isn't true. Right. So, I mean, in, in 2015, the year I look at as police shootings in Taboo, the total number of unarmed black men killed specifically by white police officers was 17 nationally. There were, I believe, 60 million police citizen encounters. So the whole thing was just BS. Like almost all the cases that were being mentioned, like Michael Brown, in fact, turned out to involve just brothers or for that matter, Caucasian guys violently attacking officers. None of the none of the officers, if you followed the cases for a year, were even being sent to jail. And that wasn't because of racism. So the book explores that for about 40 pages. The interracial crime thing, once again, when I looked at that, there were two things that collapsed. So first, the narrative on the left, if you look at Barbecue Becky and you know Pool Patrol Paula and all of this is there are constant attacks if you are a, a black or Hispanic citizen as you attempt to, Erica Thomas, go to the grocery store. Um, what, what we found out was that that wasn't true at all. Um, I mean, interracial crime bluntly was 80% minority on white, at least that year. There are more whites and they have more money. The flip side of that, though, when you look at that right wing narrative of sort of, you know, they coming like they're they're incessant attacks on the suburbs, they're, they're coming for the suburbs. That also turned out not to be true. Uh, interracial crime, at least violent crimes involving blacks and whites, uh, was about three percent of crime. So there were six hundred thousand of these violent incidents with a black perp or a white perp, uh, the other group as victim. But there were that year there were 20 million crimes. That's that's also violent crimes or very serious property crimes like burglary or carjacking. So on the one hand, you had this is actually 80% us. On the other hand, you had it's 3% of crime. The person most likely to kill you is your ex-wife. So the entire <laughs> was uh, for men. It, for women, it's your current husband. I actually think that shows some differences between men and women, by the way. Yeah, really, men yeah. tend to be stupidly brutal and abusive in the relationship. Women, I mean, if you divorce someone, you might find out years later you've made an enemy um, in terms of some of these cases I was following. But anyway, the, the point is that like the entire narrative was false. There wasn't a lot of interracial crime. It wasn't in the direction that was being presented. Media on both sides was essentially lying with the left-wing media being even worse. So that, that's the focus of a lot of this research. I mean, Hate Crime Hoax looks at what happened to a lot of these cases. Jussie Smollett, Yasmin Saweet, Duke LaCrosse, Erica Thomas, you know, Air Force Academy, Kansas State. Did they turn out to be incidents of racial violence on either side or were they just fakes? And I mean, for all of those now, I think we, we know what the answer was. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, you know, there, there's some things and especially like the, the, the Jesse Smollett uh, case where when the when the facts just seem like too, too good for a TV movie, uh, you know, to, to, to be true, it, it, you, you start getting that that spidey sense of man, this is this is crazy, like guys with MAGA hats and <laughs> like just what walking through the streets of Chicago and 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 targeting people. You know, in those in those types of of cases, you know, what's the 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 common thread in them? Like like from a a consumer side of these types of things, is there things that we that, that people should just be sort of on the lookout to say, yeah, if you start seeing this, this this might be 
almost too bad to be true, you know? Hmm. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the there were definite tells for uh, hate crime hoaxes in the book. One of the most remarkable was that more than a third of all the incidents took place on college campuses. So, I mean, uh, at, at any given time, maybe 1% of people are attending college. And it's a very safe, secure environment, private police force on the campus and so on. But nonetheless, there were dozens, there were hundreds of these claims that were made over about a five-year period on American college campuses. So, I mean, that definitely was one of the clues. If someone at, you know, Emory University, just, just to give a hypothetical example, says, you know, we've noticed multiple neo-Nazis walking through campus, and you know this is a, you know, left-wing environment located in Georgia. I mean, like, what are, what are the urban, I mean, what, what are the actual chances of that happening? I mean, so that, that's definitely a tell. Something sounds extremely unlikely, and it comes from a pampered sort of collegiate or prep school environment. Um, but I think the biggest tell, another tell is the immediate use of fundraising, where mm -hmm. people bring out the GoFundMe. This happened in Portland on multiple occasions and say, you know, I was violently attacked by homophobes or whatever the case might be. Not, not every one of these was proven to be a hoax, but it, it's a bit suspicious in that, this happens before the report to the police often. Uh, I definitely found that to be a tell. Probably the biggest tell though is just an unlikely cinematic story. Uh, most crime is mundane and stupid. So if you look at an actual hate crime, it's like a guy who's black who goes to a cowboy bar and gets his ass kicked at closing time or vice versa. You're Caucasian, you go to a tough African-American club and you get in a fight when someone says, you know, get out of here, white boy or something crude along those lines. But I mean, so if someone says the Jesse Smollett story is actually worth exploring, right? I mean, the guy said he was walking through Chicago. It was the coldest day of the year. It's 3 a.m. during a blizzard. And he's in Streeterville, which we're all familiar with. This is a neighborhood that's probably like 15% black, 10% gay. It's a wealthy neighborhood, you know, and he sees two guys come out of an alley wearing MAGA hats and like patriotic ski masks, carrying a knotted rope noose. And the first thing they say to him is like, you're that N-word from Empire. Because, you know, Empire is number one among deep rural. Oh, <laughs> and so they attack him, these like two trained conservative fighting men, and he beats them both off. And he's holding his sandwich in his hand, he says. Like he gets back to his room with the sub in his hand and like a noose around his neck backwards. You know, he fought him off, but they were able to noose him. You know, I think when you look at a story like that, the questions in all seriousness do have to arise. I mean, is this real? Is this something likely to have occurred? And many of these stories going back quite a while are of this kind. I mean, the Tawana Brawley story that kind of started all this off was, you know, I was attacked by a group of white supremacists, I believe, that grew to include like the local prosecutor. You know, I was taken to the woods. I was sexually assaulted. They rubbed me with dog feces. I mean, it's disgusting if it happened. But like they drew swastikas on me. And you, you sort of have to ask, I mean, this is just outside of Brooklyn in like 86, like what are the odds of that taking place? So that, that's kind of the clue. What are, what are the chances that happened? Well, well Will, sometimes I, I wonder, you know, you're, you're, the title of the book was Taboo, you know, which means, you know, it's a, it's a set law of things you can or cannot do, things you can or cannot say. I think beyond the facts, I'm, I'm, because usually I'm finding more and more the facts really don't matter. I love your work in that you actually break down what did happen, what's really going on. If we really care about Black people, if we really care about unity, if we really care about all of these topics we seem like we do, why, why do the facts annoy us? You know, why do we take the first two minutes 
of what happens in a scenario through the media. And then we're just completely care, you know, we could care less about all the details that come afterwards with the investigations. Um, it, it just seems like facts don't matter anymore. So why are certain things taboo? Why can we talk about certain things and we can't talk about certain things? Who, who determines that? Well, that, that's actually a really good question. So first, in terms of narrative, I think a term you hear a lot on kind of the funny internet, right, is narrative collapse, where people will watch one of these stories like Jesse Smollett and just immediately everyone observing in terms of like bro culture, witty feminist idiots with frog profile pictures also, but not exclusively. But just like so on down the line, anyone watching this with a computer will look at something and say, that's BS, narrative collapse, not gonna be real, hashtag another one, you know, this kind of thing. Um, so one, I think that I think that as glib as it is, is a positive, that sort of phenomenon in sort of urban culture. But who's presenting the narrative in the first place? I don't like kind of them storylines, but I do think there is sort of a them in this case. Um, recently, there was a study done on Twitter and they found that only about 20% of Americans have a Twitter account at all. And of those, I think it was 8% of people do virtually all of the tweeting. They're responsible for like 85% of the tweets. And this group of people doesn't resemble America at all. It's more liberal. It's more white, but like white people that think they're hip from big cities, not to, and no criticism for the Caucasian demo that, there. But. I, I really feel judged right now. David's looking at me because like I, I'm responsible for probably about like 60% of that 85. So, and as a- I do not have a Twitter account yeah, that I use. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I mean, I, I'm in this group too. I mean, and if yeah. you look at those characteristics, like except for left-leaning and I guess white, but like urban, you know, richer than the average, coastal or a big city like Chicago or Houston, there very much is a group of people that controls the American narrative and that has sort of a witty but left-wing upper class to stereotype viewpoint. And I think if you look at academia, if you look at the NGOs, if you look at the media, that's kind of what you're getting down the line. And in terms of those characteristics, actually, you probably wouldn't see much of a difference between, say, Fox and CNN. But you also do see an element of political bias. So like they, Brooklyn University released the numbers on the, the political breakdowns for college professors about a week ago this year's. And as I recall, it was like 33 to 1 Democratic or liberal as versus Republican or conservative. So in sociology at the top 100 or whatever universities they looked at, there were 108 leftists and or Democrats, and there were zero Republicans. So this was the same in history, so on down the line. The most conservative friendly field was economics, where there were only four Democrats for every Republican. So I think that you very much have this perspective. It's the same thing in media. Um, when Pew looked at this very famously back in 2004, just going through kind of the cold stats, they found that 7% of journalists, national media journalists were conservatives or libertarians of any kind. So 93%, I guess, would be leftist liberals and moderates with most of the moderates leaning left. So you have a very definite group of people that even uses Twitter in terms of class and location. And when you look at the people that are using this social media or this traditional media in most of the major outlets, they also lean toward one of the political perspectives. And so I think that's the narrative. I mean, and it, it's subtle. It's not that these people are hacks or that they're making stuff up, but it's just, I bet if you looked at the breakdown of police shootings in the country, a shooting would be much more likely to be reported if it was a white 
or a white cop shooting a black victim than a black cop shooting a white victim. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Right. So you see these subtle biases creep first into the group of people that have these tools at all, and then politically into the people that are reporting them and that are teaching them to students and so on. And I think that's where, quote unquote, the narrative comes from. And when you look at a lot of that, because it's so extraordinarily biased, again, no one's a hacker, an idiot, but you can just point obvious things out. There, there's an entire genre of what are called audit studies where people look at white businesses and ask how racist they are, essentially anonymous <laughs> resumes, this kind of thing. And I, the first time I read these, I just, I looked and said, well, about 30% of businesses now are minority or woman owned. We're doing pretty well. How racist are we? Just out of genuine curiosity, not trying to show up the genre. And it turned out there'd never been any such study done. I'm actually doing it right now. It's something I'm interested in. But it's, it's just that's how you get a slant in one direction. You have 90 studies that find the whites are racist. Well, what about the Mexican-Americans? Oh, well, we've never done one. So that, that, I think, is the perspective a lot of people are seeing if you go to a standard elite college or something like that. So, so you know, and this might be, now this is sort of uh, going into maybe analyzing or projecting maybe, and so, so this might be an, an unfair question for, for sort of a pure data analytics perspective. but you know, what's the, what's the motivation behind this narrative? You know what I mean? Like, what's the end goal? I think that's a lot of times, and we we're, 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 we're talking about, we talked about this with uh, Ian Rowe a little bit about critical race theory. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the hardest things with critical race theory is really understanding what, what's the, the objective look like, what will success look like for, for them? Like, what are they working towards um, for, for this political movement? And, and, uh, the the and for all of this sort of narrative behind it is 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 the end goal abolishing the police or defund the police or what what is the end goal of this or is there even is, has there been thought put to that from your perspective? Well, I think to some extent this is just kind of background for a lot of people in the way that like a blue collar uncle of mine might say something like "be a man, rub some dirt in it" hurt <laughs> during a game. It's just that's a perspective from a particular culture that a lot of people, especially dudes, have. And it's the same thing with a lot of this stuff. It's not really all that analyzed. Like if you ask a left-wing, up-middle-class, white female friend, is the country really racist? She would, as a default, say, yeah. And the question would be, well, then what, what does that mean? Like, are there laws that discriminate against minorities? Are you a bigot? Are your friends bigots? You know, is the mayor of your city in Chicago or Detroit, are they, are they Caucasian? I mean, and you you get, gradually can unpack, you know, there's still some prejudice, but it's a fairly free country. But the, the baseline starting position is just, this is something I believe, as someone else might believe, men should be taught. Um, so I, I don't know if everyone who thinks this has a goal or has really thought much about it at all. I think, I think yeah. the issue is that a lot of people who have one of the common perspectives in society dominate kind of the media, academia, that charitable sector. And I don't, by the way, I don't think these people, like when people say like, they're going to take over the country, like, I don't necessarily think so. I think that the, the right wing um, enterprises, industry versus business, the military, well, we'll pull out a woke general every so often, but I mean, they're, they're still pretty much doing what they've been doing for centuries, athletic. I mean, I, I think the agriculture, farming, they grow the food. I think there are plenty of sectors of religion that lean right and have some pretty entrenched viewpoints that would be hard to change. But why it matters that this is so prevalent in what I call discourse is that this is what we hear. So, this, I mean, this is what television says, this is what the paper says, what social media says. So right. what percentage of people actually believe you can automatically change from being a male into being a female after, for example, a short surgery? I mean, when I've surveyed on Twitter and so on, it's, usually, it's about 2%. 
I mean, if, if you look at the data, you find ratings up to 20, 30%. But I don't think that's a majority of people. However, I think we hear this so often presented as the mainstream viewpoint because of that control of that sector. But I mean, for, so, so far, I've just said a lot of people just think this. Okay, fair enough. But what's the goal for the people that are leaders in some of these groups? I mean, I, I would say dramatic transformation of society. Yeah. I mean, there was a recent poll of young Americans that asked, uh, and I, I forget the exact wording of the question, but it was something along the lines of, how do you feel about the idea of America being a majority minority, disarmed, more socialist country in 20 years? And the majority of young people, especially in that demographic I'm describing, thought that was a good idea. So when you say that majority minority, if you're talking about Hispanics, Asians, West Africans, I mean, that doesn't really mean much of anything to me at all. But the other stuff, uh, majority minority, more socialist disarmed country, what would you have to do to get there? I mean, I think you see specific campaign ideas. I mean, the Green New Deal, if you read it in full, is really, really comprehensive. Yeah. I mean, the infrastructure plan, which includes like babysitting as infrastructure. You know, all of this stuff. I mean, are we going to have a new assault weapons ban? I mean, this could easily lead into political ideas. And I think that some of them, like, I don't object to giving money to poor people with some safeguards on it, but some of them are going to be pretty significant. Like, I mean, we've just seen the population except being locked down for a year in response to a moderately serious disease epidemic. I mean, 300,000 did last year. That's terrible. But in the context of 57, 58, the, the Spanish flu epidemic, quote unquote, I mean, not really unprecedented. Will we do this to fight against climate change, for example, something like that in the future? So they're, they're very practical realities without at all minimizing COVID or even the fact that climate sure. change exists. Yeah. But they're, yeah. they're practical realities that can come out of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll just say, you know, the Chicago Cubs are infrastructure uh, just for notes. But uh, also, too, uh, you know, one of the things that, as you're talking, reminded me of, uh, I saw this uh, online the other day and actually it was out of Chicago as well that the, the talk about like, what, what are the end goals they're trying to get to? And, and a lot of times the things they're presenting, it doesn't seem to logically follow where uh, the, it was the Chicago teachers union that were demanding like a, a massive increase uh, on spending. Uh, and it was going to raise it from like $22,000 per kid to $28,000 per kid. And of course, because I was on Twitter, when I saw this, uh, I, I tweeted out like who, who actually thinks if we start spending this much money more, we're going to get better outcomes? Like, and where's, where's the actual data? Again, to talk to you about actual data, where's the actual proof to show like, hey, yeah, if, if all of a sudden we start spending 30% more or 20, whatever, it was like 27% more, uh, we're going to get, uh, all of a sudden, all the kids in Chicago public schools are going to start performing way better and all these issues are going to get solved. And, and But that just never seemed to come into the equation, you know? Well, I mean, I can't imagine speaking honestly to two other urban men that anyone believes that. Um, well, but that's the thing they have to, they can't all be evil or something. All these nice suburban kids that have these stupid ideas and are screwing up the hood. They can't all be, I, I think there, there's a term useful idiot that I think is very applicable here. Where, and it, I don't even mean this in the Russian sense. I mean, you're basically a good person. You want to do good. You know, your boyfriend came from a tough neighborhood. Like you're pretty much well-intentioned but you're thinking of these simple broad lens solutions that sound good, but that, yeah, I don't think it'll do much on the ground. So like that figure you just mentioned, it, let's put that in context. When you say they wanna spend $29,000 a year per kid or something like this, LA schools, by the way, are rival another great city, but are already at 26,000. That's a job. That's like a decent job after taxes. <laughs> 
I mean, I didn't make that much till I was at least 25. Like yeah, you're not right. yeah. digging <laughs> holes or whatever. I mean, so, you know, what is that money buying? I think is a valid question. Like I went online to help my students with uh, textbooks this summer. We were thinking about doing a fundraiser, you know, smaller school, but we've got money, but the books are expensive in these methods classes. And like the biggest methods textbook out there, which some of the kids wanted some assistance getting was like $160. So say you've got 10 of those, which is way more than a high school book should cost. That's every class, you know, throwing a computer on the desk. I mean, that's maybe $2,000 for kid, per kid. What does the other money go for? I mean, this is, this is I'm being quite serious. This is a municipal institution. It's not being taxed. What if you just give them $27,000 per kid? What the hell are they doing? Yeah. You know, and like when you go to schools in the hood, and this is very true in poor white Appalachia as well. Like you see, they don't have books and pencils. Sometimes it's heartbreaking. But these schools, even if they're getting half that, they're getting fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 a child. What's happening? And what you find is that in poor areas, white and black, uh, municipal governments are often, frankly, stealing it. You have some kind of TIF district, they're called in Chicago, that transfers money from here to here, and it takes a firm of professional accountants to follow it around. You find that the teachers unions, the school board, so on, are getting that money before it goes to the school. So I remember I used to work on Michigan Avenue X LaSalle Street, and that sales and trading floor world. And right next to my glass and steel building, maybe a block away, there was another glass and steel building that was the Chicago Board of Ed. But I mean, then you go to a Chicago school, and I mean, they might have to pat you down when you walk in. So I mean, is it, how much of this is going for gold fixtures for the teachers union hall? You know? Anyway, the point is that until you figure out where the money's going, what's happening to it, giving money to a lot of these urban environments, again, across ethnic lines, is like kind of like giving money to Haiti or El Salvador or Bosnia in the sense that you know someone's just going to take it and then ask for more. <laughs> You're not going to get a report on what it's going for. It's not going for pencils, $30,000 a year. So... <laughs> But anyway, the, the real thing you see with education is that there are things that like charter schools or private schools, like Chicago's Catholic Diocese does a great job. Um, private schools, Catholic schools, they're generally spending about half what the public schools are and they're spending it directly. Like the teachers will have an aid. You'll have newer equipment in the classroom. The more important thing though, is that you're going to have longer hours teaching. You're gonna have, in my opinion, smarter teachers because the cutoff isn't, do you have the most recent version of the education degree? It's how'd you do on the interview? How'd you do on the tests? We don't require a particular degree. And it's those things that boost performance in schools. One of the last, last comment on this, but I mean, one of the things that I find every year, if you look at the data, Tom Sowell wrote a book about this in 2020, is that the charter school student population, which is like 95% Latino and black, in general beats the public school student population, which is like 60% white, something like that, by a few points on the tests. Like it's not incredible on either side, but it just illustrates that point that if you give people the same amount of tutoring and time that some of the suburban kids might be getting home with their dad, you're gonna get very similar scores. This isn't due to racism, it's certainly not due to genetics, it's just due to culture and training. Like you literally see, if you put the kids in an actual school room with an actual teacher for the same amount of time, they're all in 5% of each other. So that, that's the point. You don't need to give $30,000 to the people running the school district so they can keep it. That's not going to do anything. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think you're kind of heading down to my last question here is, huh? you mentioned Thomas Sowell. I uh, love his stuff. Uh, pretty pretty pessimistic view of, uh, of the future of America, though, um, to say the least. Are you, a, do you have a pessimistic view or an optimistic view of where we're going, not just with race relations, but just in America? I mean, it, 
you know, with who's holding the microphone that we've talked about today to, you know, the next generation of folks that are, are, are getting some of those uh, subpar uh, academic achievements. I mean, what, what are you seeing? I, I actually have an optimistic view of the future. I mean, like, I don't want, yeah, going to a ghetto school sucks or an Appalachian one in most cases, but that that's always been the case. It wasn't like you going to school in Harlan, Kentucky in 1970, it'd be a better education than you're getting now. It just cost a hell of a lot less. It would be less of a hand in all of our pockets. But I mean, yes, there are problems, serious problems like poverty that we all need to work together to fight as countrymen. Absolutely, that, that's a given. But I'm actually very optimistic about the world. I, I think that the great under, and this is one of the things that distinguishes me from Tom Stoll, and I would say probably Niall Ferguson, most people with a quantitative political science or economic or historical background, partly because some of my training in specifically international relations involves looking at the world over the past hundred years. And I think the great unreported story of the past one to 200 years is that life is getting better. If you look at pretty much any variable, as we would say, from life expectancy to tested IQ, I mean, there's something called the Flynn effect. We can debate IQ across states and ethnic groups and so on. But the IQ for everybody in the world has increased by about 18 to 21 points over the past 100 years. They've had to renorm the test four or five times. I mean, when they gave recent immigrants to the USA IQ board tests before World War I, before World War II, across whites, West Indians, Hispanics, I mean, a lot of these scores are in the 70s and 80s. I mean, people weren't sure what to do with the pencil. And we've moved well beyond that women's rights. I mean, pretty much anything you could think of, life's gotten dramatically better. Women couldn't vote until 1920. In terms of that whole conversation between like black and Hispanic and Irish and Italian men who had it worse, I mean, BIM, they couldn't participate in government at all until a hundred years ago. So we're, we're well past that. And I, I think these trends will continue. Um, I saw a graphic the other day that was actually a bunch of my friends who are mostly Latino were fighting about whether Fidel Castro did anything positive for Cuba. And they were pulling up education rates, like rates of literacy. And it was interesting. Like, it wasn't my fight. Like, I'm not just going to randomly say offensive things about a country I don't know anything about. Like, no, he didn't. <laughs> like, it, one of the things I noticed is that Castro or not, the literacy rate in the country went from 50% to 60% to 80%. Now it's 95%. And most of that was not under Castro. But you have to say, well, they may be a rival or even an enemy state, but the, the literacy rate is 95%. They're, they're doing as well as we are. This is the world now. So those trends aren't going to stop at any point, the establishment of public libraries and so on. I think that the problems we're going to be facing are primarily the problems of decadence rather than barbarism going forward. So, I mean, I would say without naming names, probably a fifth of the female friends or partners of like younger mentees in my group of guys are some kind of sex worker. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not here to make moral judgments, but if you look at OnlyFans, I mean, that's what, 19 million registrants? They're mostly American? I don't want to exaggerate, but that's a site designed to promote sex work. It's like pictures of you naked masturbating, unless you're a professional model or something. There's no other content that's going to make all those strangers give you $10 a month. You know, so, and if you just scroll through social media, you'll see these posts, like I'm running a $5 OnlyFans sale this month. You know, a female friend will say something strong and feminist if it gets a thousand likes underneath that, and here's my OnlyFans. So is it healthy when, let's say at a very conservative estimate, 5% of young women are sex workers? Uh, I would say no. I'm not the most moral guy, but I can't think that's a good thing. I think there are going to be a lot of marriages about 10 years from now that are going to be real derailed when someone or their mom or their preacher start just looking through the open access internet. Um, so it's stuff like that. I mean, opiates. We had 70,000 drug, drug overdoses last year. We're now getting these concentrated versions of these drugs like fentanyl from other right. great power countries like Mexico and India and Russia 
that again, I'm not a prudish guy on drugs or partying or having a drink, but that will kill you if you take more than a tiny amount. So we lost almost 100,000 citizens to this. This is kind of a, an undiscussed second epidemic underlying COVID, but it's mostly killing healthy fighting age young people. So these I think are the problems we're gonna have to deal more with. The uh, biggest health problem is obesity because you can now get you know a bacon sandwich with the bun made of fried chicken. That was called the double down. It was sold at Kentucky Fried Chicken. I've eaten it, it's delicious. But you're not supposed to be eating a meat sandwich with a meat bun, you know, as an adult man. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? Well, what's the calorie count on that thing? You know, so I, I think these are the issues that we're going to be- With a Diet Coke. Yeah, and you, that's, you'll see guys buying like four sandwiches at a fast food restaurant and they're like a water. It's like, we see you, you know, bro. But the point is though, like all jokes and banter aside, we will, we can't simply lose 100,000 citizens every year to drugs sold by enemy powers. I mean, that's, that's what started the opium wars if you read through history. So, I mean, there definitely will be issues on the horizon that will confront us. But on average, I would say, for example, in 25 years, life expectancy will be seven years higher than it is today. I, I don't think there's much doubt about that, five to seven years. Gene technology is on the horizon. So yeah. will, the world will be potentially better. The issue will be doing the things like physically working out, training to defend yourself, showing some kind of romantic restraint if you're in a relationship, so on, that people traditionally yeah. took for granted. Yeah. Well, uh, Will Riley, I, I got to say, I, I, I've loved this conversation. I, I'm hoping we'll find another reason to bring you back. Uh, because again, so much of the conversations we have around all these topics tend to be uh, more hot takes uh, than based in actual data. Uh, and so that, that's, uh, that's, this has been a, a real treat for us and, and, and actually a lot of fun as well. Uh, so uh, again, uh, thanks, Will Riley, for, for sharing your insights. And thanks for those for you uh, for joining us on the narrative here. Uh, be sure uh, to uh, to like and uh, subscribe to uh, the narrative wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the narrative is presented by Center for Christian Virtue and produced by Western Media. We're your hosts, Aaron Bear and David Mahan, and we'll catch you next time on the narrative.